0: The cast of characters grows in the FTX drama. Who are the judges? I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. So our diving platform today, we're just going to take a big leap off of this. Bankman Freed faces more criminal charges, allegedly hid political donations. So here's the latest in the FTX drama, This is my third episode on this. It's been going on since November. And just as a recap, FTX was a big crypto platform. It had a hedge fund associated with it called Alameda Research. And there was a whole lot of funny business going on there. They didn't keep the proper books. Sometimes they kept two sets of books or left things out of the books on purpose, some people say. Uh, The guy who ran FTX, who founded it, this Sam Bankman Freed, is the child of two Stanford law professors, one of whom I actually had. So this whole thing took on a whole, like, really personal curiosity. I mean, I wasn't, like, didn't have any relationship with this professor, but I liked him, and I—I don't know. I feel like he had some ethical grounding, seemed to have a a system of ethics— and the, so this whole thing seemed weird to me because what people say about Sam Bankman Freed is that it's a money laundering scam and all this kind of stuff. And I just, that I do not believe. I think this comes down to some kind of, what I would say, misguided idea of ethics where I think they're doing this on purpose. I think this is a big psyop. I think it's meant to usher in various Ways of regulating crypto, of even setting the groundwork for central bank digital currency, CBDC. And I think they're doing it because they think that's like good for society or they want to shape the world in a certain way. And this is going to help them do that. And I think they don't care what people think of them. I actually, the, the expression occurred to me. He's a crypto martyr. So he's a, a, a martyr who is not known, who's not, like, sung as a martyr who was killed at the stake for whatever. He's He looks like a villain, but that makes him even more of a martyr in this particular ethical culture that he's a part of, which is called effective altruism. I think that they would say they don't care what people think of them. You just do what's effective. And what's, there are so many different wrinkles that are so weird about this story. So his partner, Caroline Ellison was she supposedly ran Alameda Research after a while, but her father was uh, is the head of the economics department at MIT. The current SEC chairman used to be a teacher there who reported to him, at least taught one class there. Uh, Professor Bankman was good friends with an SEC chairman who still teaches at Stanford Law School. And um, Gary Gensler, the current SEC chair, was the boss of somebody who worked at FTX, at the CFTC, the commodities futures trading commission, I think it's called. So there's all these weird interconnections among these people, very high ranking. Uh, The, the law professor parents of SBF have so much relevant information, relevant training and positions, everything, including um, even in psychology and ethics, all this stuff. So, all these different pieces fit together to me in a way that makes this look like a play with a purpose. Not this kid is just, you know, basically autistic and, um, in his own world and not paying attention to rules. I just don't buy that story. And if you do want to hear my first two, they're just loaded with information. I'll put them in the show notes. There were two, uh, FTX shows that I did The first one is in the Deep Dives feed, Deep Dives with Monica Perez, on your favorite podcasting platform. On December 2nd, 2022, is the FTX scandal the beginning of the beginning for crypto? Because I think that regulating crypto is how the government wants to mainstream it, by making people comfortable with it. And my second FTX show was... In the Deep Dives feed, December 16th, 2022, the deeper agenda behind SBF and Dorsey. So if you want to get absolutely all of the backstory, there you go. But I just wanted to set the stage that let you know that I don't think I just don't think this is about political donations. I don't think it's about laundering money. I don't think it's about this guy being a spoiled jerk or any of that. I think this is about a big psyop to bring major changes to our financial system because central bank digital currency is where you don't have cash anymore. So everything rests in, you know, it's going to be on blockchain, I guess, there are different ways to do it, but it will be where all the money is digital. And I'm going to get into a little bit about what the mainstream says are the pros and cons of that and what worries me about that but it's also about just crypto regulation in general but i think the reason they want to mainstream crypto to make it safe for you know the family is that they want it to be the bridge it is the bridge i've always thought that bitcoin was a gateway to a cashless society it's very clear to me that that's what's happening but they have to they have to act like it's it's a draw like Like people, regular people are totally into crypto, it's really popular, and they're getting burned by it. So that's how there's a, you know, the public just seems to ask for it. Okay, so, but why this is back in the news today is that SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, was back in court and more... Charges were added to his indictment. So he already had eight charges and now he's got four more. It says, uh, in an expanded indictment, he accuses the founder of conspiring to make more than 300 illegal political donations. So the way he did it. So this is, this is another agenda item I think as part of this plan is Because this came out the same day that in Georgia, so this is today, whatever it is, February 23rd, or you might be hearing it on the 24th, that Georgia is investigating—this makes me crazy—they're investigating Trump trying to, after the fact, generate extra votes coming out of Georgia when, of course, it's my belief that Georgia—that Georgia's Fulton County ballots weren't properly audited, so— I think there was fraud there, or there could have been, and I don't, like, what they did to say there wasn't, I don't believe that. I don't think that's, I'm not satisfied by the evidence they've presented that there's no fraud. However, the actual legal action that's going on there is just against Trump saying, after the fact, hey, where are my votes? So, now you have in the news two things that really enrage one from the left and one from the right. So people are really pissed about the Trump thing on the right because they feel defensive about it, on the left because they think they hate Trump. But here, this guy is mostly donating to Democrats. He's saying uh, that he's doing it just like he doesn't believe it. In one point it says like, uh, oh, make the, I'm paraphrasing, but basically make the gay guy give a million dollars to LGBTQ cause we'll call in that favor later. He's the face of all the woke shit. So he he comes out as very kind of like Trump and Musk, like saying these ridiculous things that would get a normal person completely canceled in every way, especially people who are dealing with SEC regulations or legal issues. For them to come out and talk like this is just not believable. I don't believe it. But that's what what's coming out and these indictments and everything. And what I think they're saying is what, what I think the purpose is, is to enrage people on the right and the left. So you've got all these people on both sides, mad for all sorts of reasons. And what will happen is, or I think, you know, I don't even think you'll get cries from the rank and file. Like we need to rein in this election stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Maybe you will. Or maybe it just makes them susceptible to whatever the propaganda machine feeds them on left and right to believe in. But even if your regular person's mind does not change and doesn't want centralized elections or uh, federal oversight on every election, which I don't want, but I'm assuming that's where everyone will converge on the policy agenda, even if they don't want that, by setting it up like this, the, the propaganda machine will just say... You see, this is what people want. They'll get one soundbite. That's the whole essence of this building consensus thing, this Delphi technique that Rosa Quarry told us about, was that it's not that they're actually getting your ideas and um, having them reflected in the policy. They're building consensus for their policy, and they're not even really doing it in a way that moves hearts and minds. It shuts up dissenters and amplifies people who are a lot of times set up to make these arguments. So I feel like there's stuff related to the election ideas in here, but what th- what they're doing, and I know it's absolutely true, I've seen it happen, they have straw men. So like there are contribution caps on how much you can give to – one individual can give to one candidate or whatever, and that's why people don't like PACs. And I think the Citizen United case, which is going to come up later in this conversation – Made it possible for, you know, larger donations to go not directly to the person, but to a PAC. Maybe it was a different thing, but I think that was it. Uh, I I think Citizens United was like a corporation can give like a person. But I feel like these PACs and super PACs are a way to aggregate funding without it violating those rules because it doesn't actually go directly to the person's campaign. So these things I think all work together, but they're completely – you know, what they do is they work together to create loopholes. So when he's channeling tens of millions of dollars, the two things they're saying that he's doing is creating straw transactions. So giving it under somebody else's name, like his bi or gay or whatever worker who didn't really want to do it but ends up there is a record of the guy they think this is giving a million dollars to whatever organization that he was directed to give it to. So there's that. And they're also suggesting that he's giving black money, I think, dark money, dark money to Republicans. So nobody's putting their face on that. Nobody's putting their name on that. But they want the money to get there because they want to do something. They want to have political influence. So now it's coming out more and more. like The narrative is unfolding to say that what he wanted to do was encouraged, seeing that regulation was coming down the pipe for these guys, for crypto, SBF wanted very cleverly to have the CFTC, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, I believe is what it stands for, be the one to regulate it rather than the SEC, because They wouldn't have the funding. They wouldn't have the expertise to really do a great job. It would be pretty loosey-goosey. And that explains why, and this I I touched on these characters in the cast of characters in a previous episode, why Ryan Miller and uh, Eliana Katz were at FTX. I mean, these were political operatives. I mean, Ryan Miller worked for Gary Gensler at the CFTC. And supposedly they were there to encourage Congress, because that Katz was a congressional aide, to move towards the CFTC approach. Now, I think this thing is a PSYOP. So I think by getting this huge failure, this proven bad guy, to want the CFTC and make that public, now the push for regulation is going to be to want the SEC to do it. I coined a phrase for that. It's the what I'm going to call the Gascon Newsom effect. So, when Gavin Newsom endorsed this DA Gascon, I knew nothing about him, but I voted for the other person who I did know stuff about and did not like because nothing I knew about her could be worse than Newsom's endorsement. <laughs> and it ends up this DA is the worst. In the world history, <laughs> so the Ga- the, the Gascon Newsom effect. I'm gonna I'm gonna name it or rule Gascon Newsom rule um, is you know where somebody awful likes somebody you, you have to hate the person they like like that enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. So that that's all the stuff about him and the political contributions. I mean it's not all of it. You could just definitely people will spin a lot of. You know, people get aggravated about that because it feels like, especially with his mother's involvement in like figuring out how to swoop in at the last minute and favor Democrats with a bunch of money and races, like that was her clever idea and what she set up an organization to do. Like this stuff will make you mad. And I think it's designed to at this point. But there was another part of the new accusations, new indictment, which is this unlicensed money transmitting... Business. So he's kind of acting as a bank, which I think plays into some of the other regulation that's like not as interesting to me, but it's definitely happening. And I just feel like with every single little detail that comes out with the FTX story, every detail points to some item that was already on the agenda. And when I see that, I mean, that's a huge red flag to me. So I'll mention those regulations in a minute. But another thing that I thought was just not super crazy interesting, but um, just kind of funny, SBF was reprimanded by the judge or censured or whatever for texting or trying to contact the general counsel of FTX. He said something like, I would really love, oh, this is a quote, I would really love to reconnect and see if there's a way for us to have a constructive relationship, use each other's resources when possible, or at least vet things with each other, Bankman-Fried wrote to an employee, former employee, in an encrypted message on January 12th. So the judge said no more using encryption things. And then he, he even even after he was told that, he went back and used a VPN to access the internet at least twice, he says, only to watch football. So VPN is a, I mean I want to say a virtual private network. Virtual private network, there it is. Okay. So I guess he got slapped on the wrist for that, but he just does stupid things. He says stupid things. Oh, so I just feel like they're going to come after VPNs. Like that's another thing that's in the that's in the cards here. VPNs, encrypted messaging, privacy apps, like so they talk about encrypted messages, Signal, VPN. So all that stuff is now getting highlighted as something someone can use in a criminal enterprise. So get ready for that to take some kind of uh, regulatory spotlight at some point. So he still doesn't seem to be super punished for this. I think he's staying at his parents' house. but So his parents are incredibly high-profile lawyers. They were Stanford Law School professors really know what they're doing in a variety of fields. Yet this guy is out there running his mouth. He started a Substack. N- again, not believable. But I realized, so I look at this Caroline Ellison, she's she's ridiculous. She's like I always think of her as like uh dressed like a nerd day at school. I think I've seen that with my kids once in a while, dressed like a nerd day. She dresses like that. I figured out who SBF is. He's Martin Shkreli. They took the guy who remember he was the pharmaceutical guy who like pumped up prices and then they threw him in jail for undermining investments, you know, and an investor trust or whatever, even though everything he did increased the, the investments. And when they took him out, that's when the prices crashed. I think Conrad Black had a similar circumstance. It's just preposterous. But I think Shkreli. Or Skrelly was is the real deal, like Ross Ulbricht. Like I'm not saying he's a good guy or a bad guy. Ross Ulbricht was a good guy, but or certainly an innocent victim. But uh, Scrawley just w- just would say stupid things and piss people off. He was just arrogant, I think, because he knew or felt like he didn't break any laws, but they still got him. Now he's at like a halfway house or something. But I feel like that is the character they based SBF on. And that's, that's how they try to make it realistic. But his context is so ridiculously different from Shkreli's that it's just not, you know, I just don't believe it. And, I, you know, when I watched, when I went back and looked at pictures of Shkreli just to see, it just in my mind rang out a, an expression from my youth when I saw a person like that, or my brothers would call him a punkus mucus. So he looked like a punkus mucus and I feel like SPF is like Caroline Ellison is the nerd SPF is the punkus mucus. So and I'm not even saying he really is. I'm saying that's what he's playing in this role. I don't know what he really is. I don't I don't know him at all. So let's talk about Caroline Ellison. She again, is just too connected to people who are too relevant and too expert in these exact fields for this to be real in my book. So, but, and I, I say this stuff and my husband's like, it's real. Like, I, I, it's not, I just, I'm just, it just doesn't feel real, you know? And I'll tell them these things and he'll be like, yeah, that is weird. That is weird. That is weird. And then his last straw was like, Caroline Ellison pleaded guilty and she's cooperating. Like, she's facing 110 years in prison or whatever, and she's just rolling over on this guy, and he's going to be in trouble. And I'm like, I don't know. There's got to be a catch. I don't know. So I start digging into her story. She she supposedly entered into a plea bargain, which is non-binding on the judge, but they suggest that uh, they are asking – For her to have immunity on all of these charges, a lot of charges, wire fraud, other stuff like that, that she confessed to, that could, if served consecutively, result in 110 years in prison. But she's supposedly bargained for getting immunity on all that if she cooperates. And her sentencing isn't for another year. So the idea, I guess, is depending on how much she cooperates over this year, then we'll see what her sentence looks like. And I just thought... There what went on in that courtroom? Like, who was the judge? That was my my thought about that. <laughs> so I looked it up. This was what I did. So, like, so my husband's telling me I could not get my mind around it. I was like, it it just can't be true. Like, it just doesn't make sense that this is really going down that way. And my only thought was, who could the judge be? The judge, you might have heard me say this. I revealed this on a couple of other shows. Ronnie Abrams. Ronnie Abrams, does that name ring a bell? If you're a long-time listener to my shows, you will know Ronnie Abrams was the judge who is married to a guy named Greg Andre, who was the number two on the Mueller investigation against Trump on the whatever Ukraine stuff back in the day. And she was the one who presided over a fraud trial where four people got convicted of defrauding an American Indian tribe and went to jail. And at the end of the trial, when she was sentencing everybody, she overturned one of the convictions and just said Devin Archer didn't know what he was doing. Well, Devin Archer was Hunter Biden's board mate on Burisma and one of his financial partners. And all of these I consider to be highly sketchy financial organizations and investments and stuff, Devin Archer, you might also know because one of those convicted Sugarman uh, was the boss of Heidi Plank, that woman who disappeared in LA. So this over, when Ronnie Abrams overturned Devin Archer's conviction, it prosecutors were outraged, I guess. And I didn't know that you could like appeal it, but you can appeal that because the jury convicted him and they appealed it all the way up to the Supreme court. And, and then Ronnie Abrams had to, put Devin—had to sentence Devin Archer. And I think she—I don't think she gave him the four years or whatever she gave the other people. I think she only gave him a year. And who knows if he really served it or not. I don't know. But it took years before it even came through. But so that's why I know her. And so anytime I see something like this or, like, something sketchy is going on, I always look to the judge— And if the judge has some sketchy past, and like they don't all, like I've looked up judges and they don't have stuff like, I know that case. If I know the case, because I don't pay attention to that stuff, if it hit the mainstream so high level that my reading of like the first section of the Wall Street Journal every once in a while brings it to my attention, that's that to me is like... Was there something weird about that case? Like, why was that? Why is this person on that case? So she had cases. She had the Devin Archer case. She was on the Trump rape accusation case. She was on the Trump emoluments case. Uh, She went to, this is weird to me too, she went to the Dalton School. (laughs) So the Dalton School was the school where Jeffrey Epstein briefly taught and also where I guess Bill Barr's father. I think maybe have been the headmaster around the time that Jeffrey Epstein taught there. But in addition to all of that, she is the daughter of Floyd Abrams, who had high-profile cases himself. He was a lawyer, worked on the Pentagon Papers, the Judith Miller CIA case, Citizens United, the one with the campaign financing. So that came up a couple of times in my research today. But his cousin, her father's co- first cousin, is Elliot Abrams, who is such scum. <laughs> I mean, I've d- done whole shows on him. When he was appointed to, like, oversee Venezuela when we were trying to do a coup there, oh, my gosh. Uh, did I uncover some stuff about him? I think he was convicted for lying. I know he was convicted for lying in the Iran-Contra affair, but he is as deep state as they get. So, she, there are articles, there's an article I read called The Abrams Family, where she just really, like, uh, learned at the knee of her father all about law and stuff, this is exactly the kind of person you could make a created person out of. You could plant this person. She has a really impressive CV. Like, I was reading her, her like, resume and her experiences, and I thought, wow, like, I bet this chick has no kids. Because... I can't imagine how, I think she's around my age, I can't imagine being that accomplished and having kids. And from what I can tell, I believe she does not have kids. Mm-hmm. So I had already looked into that. I hadn't done a show on it, but it was in my hopper of stuff I was going to bring to you for my like part three of this whole saga. And then this new thing comes down for SPF. And something smelled fishy about it. I, I think maybe it was, like, the VPN thing or, you know, that he kept thumbing his nose and he doesn't go back, he doesn't go to jail or anything, just weird stuff. So I was like, who's the, who's the judge on this case? So I look into it, and it's a guy named Lewis Kaplan. So the first thing that comes up is this story of this case uh, in Ecuador against Chevron. And I had read about this case before. This case totally, totally baffled me. Like it could be extreme in one way or extreme in the other. And I really don't know what to make of it. But in Ecuador, Chevron, which I believe wanted to be, wanted this case to take place in Ecuador, lost a $10 billion judgment for polluting the environment and their drilling. And they absolutely did not want to pay that, not only because it's $10 billion, but it would be a terrible precedent for the oil industry to be responsible for environmental damage like what they were, like the farmers were claiming in in Ecuador. Now, Lewis Kaplan was the judge who overturned the judgment. And here's where it gets weird. He overturned the judgment saying it was based on fraud and bribery. And that was basically, from what I have read, based on the testimony primarily of one person who later recanted for the most part. So, but I would expect there to be fraud and bribery, but it could be uh, a term I recently learned, defensive bribery and not invasive bribery. Like you have to bribe them just to give you a fair shake. You're not bribing them to, to be corrupt. You're bribing them not to be corrupt. So I don't know the nature of the bribes. I don't know if there really were bribes. There was an international court who also said like this was absolutely, um, uh, This case was riddled with corruption, but of course, I wouldn't expect any court, especially on the global scale, to rule against big energy. I just wouldn't. But what Kaplan did, he went further than just overturning that. He went after the lawyer, Donziger, who who had won this case. Which was for the farmers. Of course, the the lawyers usually get a third, maybe even a half. So obviously the lawyers were going to make insane amounts of money. But he really went after him. And when prosecutors wouldn't take up a case against Donziger personally, I I didn't even know this was possible. The lawyer appointed a private law firm to go after it. I I don't know if they, if he allowed it or if government money's paying for that. I don't know. But he also assigned a judge who was a friend of his to oversee that case, even though under those circumstances, the judge should have been randomly selected. It was uh, a judge named Prescott. And I, I read a lot about this in an Intercept article. And I don't really trust the Intercept. They have a lot of good information, but just... There's something sketchy about it because of their Edward Snowden background, who is super-duper sketchy. Uh, So, But on the one hand, it's like these guys, the Donziger was completely corrupt. And then on the other hand, it's like this is just Chevron, you know, nailing a squirrel to a tree so nobody ever goes after them again. Like I actually can't figure it out. I had one brush with somebody involved in the case, and when I started talking about it, this person went, crazy like really flushed in the face red angry at me and i i just it was really it was really beyond <laughs> and that person was on the side of chevron so i don't know it's obviously a super super emotional situation um and that was what made me look into the case because I had just, you know, mentioned it in passing. I guess I read some, like, blurb in the Wall Street Journal, and <laughs> it was like, what? So I really have never cracked the code on that case, but when his name came up with a case I already knew, I'm like, mm, that's weird. And he had a couple of other interesting cases. Oh, by the way, he, this Judge Kaplan, became a senior judge, so, like, semi-retired in 2011, and when he got out of the way... Ronnie Abrams got appointed to the Southern District, to this judgeship that she has. And there are 28 judges in her position. I don't know how many retired ones or semi-retired ones there are, but there are 28. So when she's getting, like, clusters of cases, like all around Trump or all around Epstein, and she went to the Dalton School, unless there are, you know, 100 cases like that, you wouldn't expect her to have, like, three of them, or two of them even. So his buddy, Kaplan's buddy, Preska, whom he appointed to this Don, Donziger case, happens to be the judge who married Ronnie Abrams and her husband, Craig Andres. Andre? A-N-D-R-E-S. So that's kind of, like, weird. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so he did other cases. He was involved in some Guantanamo cases, just like Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the latest Supreme Court justice. He was involved in some Gambino cases, and I imagine staying alive, Uh, makes you have to compromise in cases like that. I don't really know. He was uh, involved in the Kevin Spacey, like, sexual harassment or sexual, like, something even more serious than that case, abuse, maybe sexual abuse case. That was, you know, prominent case. Anyway, I mean, there are a lot of prominent cases and, you know, I don't know. I guess there are a limited number of judges, but I just think it's it weird. And then another thing I thought was weird about this guy is that, so after all this, like, he's totally pissed at SPF. He's trying to tell him like, you can't use any encryption things. Or you can't communicate with your former people. And he feels like he's in over his head. I don't know why they're having an old semi-retired guy <laughs> do this, but, I mean, he has to be, he's got to be pushing 80 because you have to be 65 to get semi-retired, and that was 2011. So he's accepting technical help from people provided by SBF's legal team. So the judge is getting his tech explained to him on which he's going to base his rulings by people SBF has put in place. And uh, and he's going to try to get educated on VPN's encrypted messaging and privacy apps. So we shall see where this all goes. Sounds like a fuster cluck. And it also reminds me of the guy who's running FTX now. He also seems like a dinosaur. He was the Enron guy. John J. Ray the third. You know, you just feel like the guy doesn't know what's going on, right? And I, I I shouldn't say that. He might. He might know what's going on. But he can act like he doesn't know what's going on. And I feel like them putting these dinosaurs in there, it'll demonstrate how basically impossible for the old way to work anymore. You can't have old styles of bankruptcy. You can't have old styles of any of this stuff because these dinosaurs just can't figure it out. And it needs to be regulated upfront because you can't do it in like tort law. You can't do it case by case. It has to be a priori because it's it's just, you know, it's just something out of this world. So where does that bring us? It brings us to a couple of things. A lot of crypto regulation, and also I think it points to CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. So let me just read you an article or just a section of an article from the IMF. This is how it opens up. This is from January, 2023. It says, the already volatile world of crypto has been upended anew by the collapse of one of its largest platforms, which heightened risks from crypto assets that lack basic protections. They go on to say, during times of stress, we've seen market failures of stablecoins, crypto-focused hedge funds like Alameda Research, crypto exchanges like FTX, which in turn raised serious concerns about market integrity and user protection. And with growing and deeper links with the core financial system, there could also be concerns about systemic risk and financial stability in the near future. And then it says many of these concerns can be addressed by strengthening financial regulation and supervision and by developing global standards that can be implemented consistently by national regulatory authorities. And they say, we address these issues, I would add by coincidence in September, 2022. And here are our recommendations. So, In September 2022, two months before the FTX collapse, and I would emphasize the FTX collapse and everything that has to do with that has every single detail necessary to address all the agenda items that I have seen raised in the previous two years by people like Gary Gensler, by this IMF thing, just everything from the hedge fund to the FTX exchange, to their interactions with each other, to how they were regulated, to how... Uh, Risk management was, um, was the failing that SBF copped to not having specific people in charge of specific things like risk management. Um, I mean, everything that these guys wanted to regulate is, was a sticking point is a hot button topic in the FTX scandal. And these guys wrote the agenda down in September. They're pointing to all of these things in that intro. During times of stress, we've seen market failures, stable coins. Stable coins they're bringing in. And actually, Daniel, who is a great uh, resource for us, I hope he will come on the show. I know he was on the Union of the Unknowns recently. Uh, He told me there was something called like the ICP, which wasn't a stable coin, but it was a foundational coin on a – you know, a foundational system. And he said, nobody really notices this, but FTX potentially could have been responsible for getting in there and destabilizing it, undermining it. It wasn't a stablecoin. A stablecoin is supposed to try to trade one-to-one with like a dollar or some other non-crypto asset. And I will say they're making all this stink about stablecoin. It's $184 billion market right now and they're saying it could be so destabilizing to the system it could move the price of treasuries the treasury market just like the first line treasury market is 24 trillion dollars i mean our national debt is 30 trillion dollars so i guess it should be closer to it should be over 30 trillion dollars but whatever but the derivatives that are based on these fundamental instruments are are so are many many times that like that's where the potential destabilization comes from is that derivatives but they're saying that this is super scary there's several wall street journal articles on it and they're telling us what they want to be uh, the regulatory framework here and they want it to be international and they also use a new expression cryptoization where it says crypto assets including stable coins uh, are not yet risks to the global financial system. They're just anticipating it. But some emerging market and developing economies are already materially affected. Some of these countries are seeing large retail holdings of and currency substitution through crypto assets, primarily dollar-denominated stable coins. So if you look back, like, Argentina used to use the dollar, basically, for a while there. And maybe still does, but I don't think so. But I remember, like, they would use the dollar, and it, it robbed them of any kind of monetary policy. Whatever, I don't care about that, but <laughs> like in my world, there wouldn't really be monetary policy. But So a stable coin would be kind of like that. It would be like using the dollar as your currency because you don't want to do it yourself. And they call it, um, some of these countries are experiencing cryptoization when these assets are substituted for domestic currency and assets and circumvent exchange and capital control restrictions. That's what they do not want. Oh, and in another article, I saw The Bahamas... Was the first country to launch a widely available CBDC. So the CBDC, in my opinion, central bank digital currency, is the answer to cryptoization. They don't talk about it in this IMF article, but that's what they're gonna use to say use use CBDC instead. Uh so, who, the Bahamas, where all this FTX stuff was happening. And oh, that's another thing. They want the international element. So, FTX has all this international stuff, a big dichotomy between how the domestic people will come out of this and how the international people. I mean, every detail points to one of these agenda items. So, but it's, but the Bahamas is ground zero. So, I think that's interesting. All right. So, what do they say? The five things they want to do to regulate crypto is, uh, Crypto asset service providers should be licensed, registered, and authorized. That includes those providing storage, transfer, exchange, settlement, and custody services with rules like those governing providers of services in the traditional financial sector. It's particularly important that customer assets are segregated from the firm's own assets and ring fenced from other functions. Licensing and authorization criteria should be well defined and responsible authorities clearly designated. Everything should be ring-fenced all the time, in my opinion, that, like, you shouldn't be able to lend people's money out unless they have a time deposit, not a demand deposit. So if you give money to the bank and you say, if I want to take this out tomorrow, I get it out tomorrow, they should actually charge you for that. But if you say, I'll give it to you for a year, and then I'm taking it back in a year, they get to lend it out for that year, and they should pay you for that. That's what I think real sound banking is. Uh, but because banks take all the assets, mush them together, and lend them out, if there's some massively destabilizing event like FTX happened and Alameda Research suffered and people's accounts suffered because the underlying assets collapsed so they they couldn't give anybody their money back because there was no money. It wasn't, they didn't just have people like, you deposited this, that's in your account, this is yours, that has your like blockchain number on it. It wasn't like that, from what I understand. They took that and they used it as collateral for other bets. So entities carrying out multiple functions should be subject to additional prudential requirements. In cases where carrying out multiple functions might generate conflicts of interest, authorities should consider whether entities should be prohibited to do so. Where firms are permitted to and do carry out multiple functions, they should be subject to robust transparency and disclosure requirements so authorities can... Identify key dependencies. That's right out of FTX. Remember, this is stuff that was written in September. Stablecoin issuers, this is kind of like the arcane banky stuff, but it's coming. Stablecoin issuers should be subject to strict prudential requirements. They should be prudent. Some of these instruments are starting to find acceptance beyond crypto users and are being used as a store of value. If not properly regulated, stablecoins could undermine monetary and financial stability Depending on the model and size of the stablecoin arrangement, strong bank-type regulation might be needed. Uh, okay, there should be clear requirements on regulated financial institutions concerning their exposure to and engagement with crypto. If they provide custody services, requirements should be clarified to address the risks arising from those functions. The recent, st- recent standard by Basil Committee on Banking Supervision on the Prudential Treatment of Banks' Crypto Assets Exposures recently is very welcome in this respect. I haven't read that. Uh, But that's, you know, these are international regulations coming down. Eventually, we need robust, comprehensive, globally consistent crypto regulation and supervision. The cross-sector and cross-border nature of crypto limits the effectiveness of uncoordinated national approaches, as we can see, because FTX is in the Bahamas. For a global approach to work, it must also be able to adapt to a changing landscape and risk outlook. I mean, this is a global, I mean, I don't think they're going to call it a global currency right away. I think different regions and countries are going to do the CBDC, but they will ultimately be one, I suppose. All right. Um, They also say, we noticed that countries have enacted bans of some kind to help reduce risk and while broadbands might be disproportionate, we believe targeted restrictions offer better policy outcomes provided there is sufficient regulatory capacity. For instance, we can restrict the use of some crypto derivatives, as shown by Japan and the United Kingdom. We can also restrict crypto promotions, as Spain and Singapore have. So they're obviously meaning to restrict how it's used, and I think they, they don't like the anonymity. I think that's what they're after he said that it goes on to say the IMF will continue to work with global bodies and member nations to help leading policymakers working on this topic to best serve individual users as well as the global financial system uh yes so i think the individual users who like bitcoin and stuff will want to keep it free and anonymous but i feel like all of this is going to lead to that but but they cannot assert their regulatory prerogative without demonstrated risk. So they want to regulate it, and they have to show that people get hurt. They want to regulate it on a global scale, and they have to show that it cannot be regulated locally. So that's what I think where this all comes together. Uh, And then I just wanted to say a couple things on CBDC. There are mainstream treatments of the pros and cons of CBDC. I'll just, this one article from The Motley Fool says, the pros of a CBDC, a central bank digital currency. So that means you're not, you don't have cash anymore. It's just electronic. You cannot use cash. The pros are it's um, more efficient and more secure. It allows consumers to use the central bank directly. Uh, So it cuts the banks out, eliminates a risk of a commercial bank collapse, but I think that's because it diminishes the role of the commercial bank and it's easy to track. Well, that goes both ways. I wouldn't call that a pro. The con is central banks have complete control. There's less privacy for users. uh, It will be hard to get people to accept it. That's not a con, you know. I mean, they just force people to accept it. Uh, And it might hurt commercial banks. But for me, you know, they don't even talk about the real risks, in my opinion, or the real downside. One is, it allows for, and has been stated, the IMF itself talked about, that's the way to allow for negative interest rates. So if you have a financial collapse like we had, basically, here, which I want to make, just make a point of. So there was a big tech collapse in, like, 2001. People just lost real money investing in tech. Banks were going to go under. And... They, I forget, you know, it's been so long and I haven't really focused on it that much, but I remember that the subprime mortgage crisis from 2008 was a function of trying to remedy or kick the can on the 2001 tech collapse. So then they gave us zero interest rates in perpetuity after that to try to kick the can from the 2008 collapse. And the way they had to fill that hole without letting banks actually go under which they should have in some fashion, is that they had to just keep inflating the money supply so that the losses weren't that big. And they could never really get a good excuse for that until the lockdowns when they made us not work anymore and they used that to make unbelievably unprecedented fiscal stimulus, stimmy checks, and all that kind of stuff. And now we're seeing the inflation. So things that we are buying are costing us more That's us paying for that tech collapse. That's us paying for the subprime mortgage crisis. That's us paying for all that stuff. Now, what they could have done instead was give us negative interest rates so that uh, they could continue Keynesian policies of reducing interest rates when there's a a downturn, Uh, but they couldn't do that. So they had to give us inflation, give us an excuse to pump up the interest rates so that they can do these 10-year cycles again and again and again. Until they get a CBDC, in which case they can give you negative interest rates, in which case your money in the bank would actually go backwards, could potentially go backwards, in which case you would have to spend, right? So it's highly stimulating because people will spend it rather than just let it go away. But but you don't have savings then. Then you're really dependent on Social Security forever. Like, it is really devious, and it worries me a lot. So that's the big problem with negative interest rates. But there are other problems, too that I like cash. I want to use cash. There's issues of freedom, not just the savings problem I just discussed and um, that it's basically moral hazard, but there are privacy issues. They can find where all your money goes, and there's freedom issues where you can use money when you can use it. So for me, not all laws and regulations are just. I would say almost all of them are, are unjust or don't fit into my definition of a of a if there even is a just government, what that would look like. And these laws are only tolerable because they are not perfectly enforced. So if there's a black market product you want to use, people like weed, which grows in their back friggin' yard, (laughs) I think in some places that's not even legal still. Uh, There's some black market services that are not permitted, prostitution, whatever, which arms-length transactions and, you know, the force of law, it's hard to stop people from doing things that they don't, that they're not like, you know, stealing or killing or whatever. They're just doing what they want to do. Somebody else wants to do it too. It's hard to stop them from doing that unless you really have force. There's also undocumented economic actors. I believe in the right to work and travel. I don't think people should come over to this country and get welfare I don't think anybody should get welfare. But if you want to hire, you know, as Judge Napolitano says, my cousin from Italy wants to come do my lawn, live in my basement. Can I do that? You can't do it if you don't have cash. You'd really have to do some hardcore barter, which is tricky. There's massive overtaxation. And if you had to literally pay every penny, again, in Italy, they, people, a lot of places have like no tax compliance whatsoever. (laughs) They just don't pay the taxes. But here we have really stringent tax compliance and this would just make it absolutely perfect. And it's just, we're at the breaking point, I think, already. But there are also things like privacy, like tipping, convenience. You want to slip somebody a couple of bucks, you know, you want to buy a pair of shoes that's maybe more expensive than your husband thinks you should spend a pair of shoes, Uh, (laughs) this is not, not me. No, actually I'm not, that, that wouldn't be something I would overspend on, but there might be something. And, and actually, as there is more control like this, as people are less and less able to skirt these laws, they become, they can become stricter and it's harder to avoid them. Now, right now, the stricter they get, the more people are willing to just say, you know what, I don't even care anymore. Like, I'll just sell it to you under the table. But you won't be able to. And then the laws can be really strict. And and it will lead to other restrictions. Like, you know, if you're a bad person or there's a, you know, complaint against you at work or school, like, perhaps that's a credit score. Like, your Uber score, you know, if your Uber score gets bad enough, you can't take an Uber. And if Uber's the only game in town where Lyft and Uber share scores and we don't have cars anymore, that's a problem. This is the kind of thing it could do. But another thing I was thinking is that asset forfeiture, I don't know if people realize that, probably most people are listening, no, asset forfeiture is like in a drug case or whatever, they can accuse you of a crime, take your assets, and it is up to you to prove that that was unjust and get your assets back. You don't have to be convicted. It's horrible. It's horrible. And the cops are get great incentives to do that. And that in itself is a moral hazard because if the government can just take your money without due process or like Trump said, take the guns first, worry about due process later, that's a big big problem if it's your money. And and you know, you don't have your own chickens or they killed your chickens because of avian flu like I do not like this. And I feel like this is, I mean, this is how big an agenda that all this stuff is serving. And that's why I think, you know, that's one. That's why I think that this was, you know, a giant psyop starts to finish. I think it's a stage play. I don't think we'll ever know all the details, but some of the details do continue to emerge as these like little stories keep popping up new developments, the agenda emerges too. And I would love to get more educated on it. So let's, uh, I'm going to see if, if Daniel will come on. I hope I remember. He has a little bit of a tricky Twitter handle. I'll have to remember it. Um, oh, Karen had asked me to read this a couple of times. I do this absolutely as a courtesy because um, I want to connect like-minded people who might be interested in this. She says, are you interested in living in a lovely, move-in-ready Echo community, safely distanced from relentless exposure to wireless technologies like cell towers and smart meters? A real estate development company with over 25 years of experience building resorts, private homes, and Echo communities is now considering developing a hardwired Echo community in Nicaragua. Very happy to say I bought a house (laughs) in LA. I have to just come to terms with the fact that I'm going to be living in LA for a while just because of my husband's job. And it's such an old house. It's like almost 100 years old. You can crawl into the house. And my husband said, we can just have wires. You can just have, like, the Ethernet. I can just plug everything in. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, It doesn't mean I'm not going to be bombarded anyway by the neighbors. So this isn't a bad idea. But she said uh, they might develop a hardwired Echo community in Nicaragua, currently the number one expat location for health and freedom-minded people you and like-minded neighbors would access internet services via safe, secure, high-performing broadband fiber optic ether network. Homes would range from tiny house size to two or three bedrooms with shared organic gardens, a solar farm power supply and filtered well water. So she wants to develop to, to demonstrate to the developers that this is wanted and needed. And she says, if you are interested, contact her at K L R. 1959 at protonmail.com. So K as in Karen, L is in lucky, R as in real, 1959 at protonmail.com. And also a shout out to my friends at True Hemp Science. I got another uh, testimonial. Somebody said to me, because I, I said, uh, this is a quote, just FYI that CBD you gave me really helps with stress management. Thank you very much. And then uh, next time I saw him, he said, you know, my favorite thing right now is the CBD. It just makes life less stressful without the drawbacks of getting high, which I totally agree with. Like, it just so lowers the stress level. And it took me a long time. So my friend Chris at True Hemp Science, he, he said, it takes a while. Like, you have, to, you have to try it. And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to. You know, I was worried about just getting high or having lower energy. I absolutely love it. It really um, has a positive impact on my mood and greatly reduces my stress level. Like, I like my stress to get my work done during the day, so I only do it after dinner, but it, it's I love it. So True Hemp Science will give you a $25 bottle of oil for every $100 purchase. I really like the 25-milligram gummies, just so you know. Anyway, but use the promo deep dive for that. And you should be able to, uh, I don't know, that should be enough, I think, to demonstrate the beauties of CBD. Not CBDC, which is bad, but CBD, which is good. So if you did enjoy this podcast, hope you did, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And if you do use social media and you want to chit-chat, you can tweet at me, at Monica Perez Show. And that is it. Thank you very much for listening to Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. And I have launched rockfin.com slash deep dives because I have an agreement with, with or, you know, just casual agreement with Binkley that I'm only going to post on our shared feeds Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. But that's kind of impossible with live streams because nobody's watching live streams at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning so in order to do live streams later in the day I started rockfin.com slash deep dives but if you if you're a propaganda report subscriber on rockfin and you watch my stuff you know it just pays royalties there like it's basically you join wherever and whoever you watch they get royalties for what you're watching so It doesn't matter if you're on rockfin.com slash propaganda report. You can watch all my stuff on deep dives. I'll continue to post the, you know, the morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday on propaganda report. But check that out, rockfin.com slash deep dives. I'll start to do live streams in the evenings or in the afternoons on that. And there's also a subscription ad-free service on Apple. If you listen on iTunes and you hate the ads, just... uh, a subscriber for five bucks a month. Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening.